UMass fans on your tweets and make some noise for your podcaster. Well, can you believe what's going on in the Atlantic 10 today? Oh, I remember man. when Penn State was in the Atlantic 10. <laughs> and he rips him down, he puts him in his seat, and he looks at him and goes, that was fucking hilarious, but you really just got to shut up. I think I'd rather die in nuclear war than go to Olympia. <laughs> Hey everybody, this is Curry Sage coming to you live from New York City. Very, very special episode tonight. Um, a little bit of backstory here. Actually, there's not really much backstory. Tonight's guest is a one we've always wanted to have on the show. He is a awesome columnist, UMass alum, uh, really interesting guy on in the history of the program and, and or on the host of UMass programs, really, and, and as an institution, and as just an institution of knowledge, so we were thrilled to get him on. Um, I am actually real sick tonight. Uh, I actually took work off today for the first time since I may or may not have taken the day for the George Washington game at the Barclays Center, uh, but this is my first sick day since then. And uh, I got to give myself a little bit of credit because I just finished recording and I feel like, look, this is my Jordan flu game, okay? Um, But I couldn't have done it without the support of the show's gracious sponsor, Five College Movers. If you're moving and you don't want it to be stressful, there's only one place to go, and that's Five College Movers. Stress-free moving in the Pioneer Valley and beyond. They do a fantastic job. These guys are so reliable that they heard I was doing a show tonight on um, on Twitter, and I had money in my Venmo account from them before I even recorded. That's how solid they are. Check them out, fivecollegemovers.com, for all your moving needs. Enjoy the show tonight, and I think I'm going to have to get to the mailbag a little later because I am absolute. my sinuses are just shot, and I just took a Tylenol PM, actually two, it's like 10:40, and uh, oh, one more thing. Yes, this is what I was doing this rambling intro for. At the very end of the episode, there is a personal announcement. You'll notice uh, it kind of came about organically. It wasn't really planning on dropping that based on some things that have transpired in my past that I've talked about on this program. Kindly do not mention it on Twitter. My wife follows me and she doesn't really listen to the show but I don't want her to hear that I posted it so or boasted of it so uh just an FYI you can send in slide in the DMs if you feel so inclined um show set to begin momentarily I don't know what I'm saying at this point I'm totally shot but uh enjoy it and as Cal would say and that's Andrew Callagy not John Calipari we love you guys peace Without further ado, it's my uh, distinct honor to bring on a UMass alum and, more importantly, in this instance, a major player in the Boston media market for many, many years, Steve Buckley. Really needs no no more introduction. Do you, do you go by Buck, or is that like only to, to friends? Oh, no, I'm Buck to everybody. Okay. Uh, in fact, uh, people... 
people call me Steve, I, I, I don't automatically turn my head because just everybody calls me Buck. And it's kind of cool. You you walk to a mall and you see somebody and wearing a Patriot shirt. Hey, Buck, how you doing? It's not someone you know. And uh, it, it's just kind of cool that everyone just knows me as that. So the impetus for having you on tonight, Buck, initially was your article in The Athletic uh, about UMass football fandom, which chronicled Zach Emery, who has been a guest on this show, who was actually helped us preview the uh, football season some weeks back on one of our more recent episodes. And before, and we love, I love the story. Subscribe to The Athletic after uh, at, semi-demeaning it when it first started. I thought they were so aggressive with the uh, pursuit of, of new subscribers that I was probably a little tongue-in-cheek about it. But now after uh, seeing a little more UMass coverage and seeing some of the new hires, I'm, I'm pretty – it is really good. So that's not – I'm not just throwing smoke. I really do enjoy it. But I wanted to know, first and foremost, how did you come up with that uh, story idea? I am blessed. I have a very good editor named Sean Leahy, who, whose job it is to work with me uh, in concert to come up with story ideas, and we talk several times a week, and uh, to give credit where it's due, he threw that at me, and he said, are you aware of the Athletic 130, which is a pretty clever idea, where they rank every FBS team, and he said, are you aware that UMass is 130, and uh, I said, well, yeah, and um, and it kind of went from there, and he said, why don't you do a piece talking to the fans? Find some diehards, not just people who go to the games, not just students who sort of gravitate toward McCork just because there's a game, but, but self-identifying diehard fans. And with a little bit of help from Steve Hewitt, who writes for the Herald, he went to UMass, also uh, Amin Torrey, who's the editor of the Collegian, uh, and they gave me a bunch of names, and I... I to, to be completely candid, I don't want to hurt your feelings here, you were on the list, but they decided, I had already talked to three people, and my editor said, let's just keep it to these three. So <laughs> you, you would have been in there otherwise, so I have to apologize for that. Please don't apologize, because the truth is, this this show is officially the UMass Basketball Podcast. We... we end up hitting on um you know football a lot but i have i can't even compare to zach in terms of the wealth of knowledge he possesses about the program and oh i learned too believe me and i should point out that when i went to umass uh in the 70s i was probably a bigger fan of the basketball team than the football team uh partly or mainly because jack lehman was the head coach and i was kind of in awe of him because He's a native of Cambridge. Uh, he grew up in Columbia Terrace, which is like uh, an eight-minute walk from Prospect Street where I grew up. So when I went out to UMass, I was already aware that he was sort of a, a Cambridge icon from his BU days as a player. And, and he, he was very, I don't know if you ever met him, but he was very gruff. And I was slightly when I first met him, but when I mentioned my Cambridge roots, he, he couldn't have been nicer to me. So there was that. Plus, they had some great teams up until my senior year. They had Mike Pyatt and Alex Eldridge. Eric Claiborne and Jim Town and guys like that. It was a pretty good team. Well, actually, speaking of Jack, and I, I don't know if I've ever revealed this on this show. I, I'm sure I've told people off the off the air, but um, this show may not exist but for Jack Lehman because when I was a high school sophomore, maybe, I was a intern and occasional co-host of the Saturday morning sports magazine at WHMP 1400 with Jack Lehman, as well as uh, former UMass play-by-play man, Bob Beeler. And then sometimes it was a guy named Bob Flaherty, who's actually a, a 
bit of a novelist who writes about Boston and other things. And uh, sometimes this guy, Ted Baker, a lot of, a lot of guys who were, you know, who was a voice of UMass hockey at one point. So that was my first foray in any, uh, you know, vaguely formal capacity was, was working with jacket. You know, we'd go to like, uh, the hardware store on Saturday morning in Florence and, and it'd be like, you know, a gyro ride and, and we, you know, or whatever, you know, things were there. So I, I learned a lot from Jack and, you know, I, I can still see his grin and the day he died was one of the, I mean, it was just, it was, it shook me to my core. So I, um, and there's so much we, this, you could do it. Into, in fact, I probably should at some point do a full episode about Jack Lehman because I think, it's it's getting to the point. I mean, it's been I think he died in 05. So it's been a while and there's a whole generation of UMass fans who don't quite know much about him other than Jack Lehman Court. But um, I do know Jack. Great guy. And the, the sternness, it, it, I can see it now. Like I once was wearing a hat backwards at a game. It was a UMass Holy Cross game. I was in high school and I walked along courtside row and I went up to Jack and like I don't even know if he even knew my name kind of thing but he definitely knew who I was because he was that kind of guy and he just like grabbed my hat he was he had you know mic in earpiece in you know on the on courts on you know press row and he just grabs my hat and turns and turns it around forward and then like shakes my hand as I as I walk to get concessions but that's like that's the the, the last I really remember of him with that like with suspenders too always suspenders in his later years I didn't see him as a coach obviously but he he had these patented suspenders and just that that shit-eating grin it was how I will remember Jack in perpetuity yeah, you know, it's funny because when, when when Jack was coaching when I was a student, he, he was stout even then, but he, he wore the traditional coach's garb, you know, the suit and all that. Uh, but later on, when I was uh, covering UMass basketball with Harold and I'd make the occasional trips out there, he, by that point, he had thrown out all decorum. He was wearing the, uh, the, the old jeans and the suspenders. He looked like, uh, like a hammer. Yes, exactly. That old... That old barn up by Boys and Sacrifice for the rec center. It looked like he was working out of that, and um, which I admired because he had reached a point in his life where he didn't need to impress anyone. So. And he would spend a lot of time at uh, at this this place, the Stables in Hadley, across from the old Hampshire Mall, which I I presume is not there anymore. But that was where that was his hangout spot, which was, you know, like it wasn't rafters or one of the sort of spots where you'd like have a coach's show. It was just this sort of off off the beaten path little like diner. Yeah, and uh, I, I will take you up in your offer. At some point during basketball season, you want to do an entire Jack Lehman podcast, I'm all in for it. Yeah. And I will tell you a, I'll save it because it's kind of a goofy story, but I can tell you a, a, a story that involves Bob Ryan from the Globe and Jack Lehman. Uh, the story begins in the 1970s, and it ends uh, about 10 years ago. It's two parts of the story, and I'll, I'll tease it with that and leave it alone for now. I, I would love that, and I, and I would, maybe maybe I'll make it, do you know Marty Dobrow? Oh, Marty, I know Marty very well, Springfield College. Yeah, so Marty's a friend of mine, and I've known since I was a little kid, and he will definitely have, um, you know, great Jack stories for sure. And maybe we can get, like, uh, Mark Vandermeer, who was the play-by-play guy back then, or Bob Bueller to, to send something in. That could be – actually, that's a – maybe – maybe because I think this is the 15th year of his death. Maybe we do a 15-year – yeah, that's – I'm committing myself to a lot here, but um, – 
the the wheels are turning, so I appreciate that. No problem. Segwaying a little bit in this in the vein. First of all, were you so you graduated UMass in '78? Yeah. Patino '75. Did you guys cross at all? No, I actually uh, I missed Patino. I missed Jeff Reardon. I missed Mike Flanagan. I missed um, Al Skinner. I missed Julius. Uh, I only went to UMass for three years. I went to UMass Boston my freshman year uh, in accordance with a plan. I had a good job at, at the uh, gas and light company in Cambridge working in the printing department, and the pay was good. So my freshman year, I would, this sounds like something out of the Depression, but I worked at the ga- in the printing department of the New England Gas and Electric Association from 7 in the morning until noontime, and then I took the subway out to Columbia Point and went to UMass Boston in the afternoon and saved up a bit of money, and then transferred out to UMass in the fall of 75. So I, uh, when I say I went to UMass, I also went to UMass Boston. Right, and Patino would have graduated the prior spring. Yeah, right. So I missed Patino, and I, I missed all those guys, um, unfortunately. And Al Skinner and I have talked about it, and, uh, and, and various other people. But all, and I, I remember when Mike Flanagan was alive, talking to him. And, uh, but, but there were some big names, obviously, in the early 70s, uh, the boardwalk bowl days, if you will. And uh, but I, I miss those years. So, speaking of Patino and Jack Lehman, and I mean, there there's obviously a third thread here. The mentor of, I mean, the the, the mentee and and one was a mentor, and then was both were mentors to John Calipari. And I was looking back at some of your old work, and I, I think, by the way, for what it's worth, that you've been eternally fair to UMass, and at varying points, you know, certain diehards in the fan base um, have have said, you know, we'll, we'll call you out because they somehow think that, you know, it's your job to shill for UMass at every opportunity, which I don't think is the case. But you have had, uh, over the years, pretty critical words about John Calipari. And I don't know if that is if that, you know, is sort of buried in the past now, if, if that's been put behind us. But I'm wondering if you could take us through the lineage of um, your sort of chronicling Calipari, your relationship with Calipari. And then if you're uh, if you're the sort of harsh words you've had for him in the past stand today, because the last I read of it was like maybe mid to late 90s when you were when you were, you know, taking issue with him. My only, I don't want to get back into the whole Calipari thing. That seems like a thousand years ago. I will say that the year they went to the Final Four was both as a sports columnist and as a UMass graduate was one of the most entertaining years I have ever had in my career. I went to a ton of games that year. There were many nights I was <clears throat> driving back from Amherst, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, at one, two o'clock in the morning, with a big smile on my face because it was, it, it's, and I've said this a million times, there have been only two times in, in the last four years that a sports, college sports program in Massachusetts has taken over the, the, the mass. And I'm not counting like, you know, BC and BU winning uh, national championships in the Frozen Four, but really it's fluty with BC in the mid 80s. And UMass with Marcus Camby and uh, Calipari and, and Padilla and Trevius on the backcourt and so forth in the mid-90s. That was a huge story in, in Boston, not just in Amherst, not in the Valley, but in, in Boston and beyond, uh, to the degree that 
both the Boston Herald and the Globe were, were covering every game, every home game, most road games. If they weren't covering the road games, they were putting a stringer on it. <laughs> so um, I think it was uh, I think it was Tony Maserati actually from the Herald was, was doing a lot of UMass games that year, and I think Joe Burris from the Boston Globe. So I was into it, and I went to Providence for the first round. I went to Atlanta. I went to the Meadowlands, and it was it was a great deal of fun. My issue with Calipari is I, I thought the optics and the timing were really bad in that as soon as things got, shall we say, interesting, uh, he took the next job. And uh, nobody knew, nobody thought he was going to stay there for his career. He clearly had carved out a path where he was on to bigger and better things, and we knew collectively that he wasn't going to you know, be retiring in New Braintree, for instance. He was, he was going to get out. And, and he did, and I thought given the, the look that was going on at the school, he should have stayed around. Is, is that fair or unfair? Uh, I mean, in retrospect, I mean... There's a couple ways to suss that out. I'm a bit of a Calipari homer. I'll cop to that. That was what was, you know, there's no there's no UMass basketball podcast or even interest. Let me interrupt. He's a great coach. He's got a great presence. I've never deterred from that. If, if I didn't, if I criticized him in column, but didn't also in the same breath say he's a great coach and has a great presence, that's only because, to me, that was obvious. That was stating the obvious. That didn't need to be restated over and over again. Yeah, and I mean, I'm curious. So, like, if you want, I, I actually, in researching for the show, I, I, I pulled up something you were quoted, a Herald story from 97 during his first year with the Nets. Do you want me to read to you what you said? Because I'm not trying. It's not a gotcha. It's just more. I'm also intrigued by just, like, you've written probably. Is this where I say he caught the first Peter Pan bus down at the campus center? No, you didn't. It, you had you had actually more better language than that. The last line was, Coach Cal has gone from being an icon in Amherst to a nobody in New Jersey. His team is lousy, his speeches are sneered at behind his back, and the Nets get about as much coverage from the glitzy New York media as the Fairleigh Dickinson wrestling team, which I thought was great prose. I mean, that's a good line. <laughs> I, I don't remember writing that. That's kind of cool. Okay. Yeah, that's good. That's, that's what I'm saying. I'm not trying to embarrass you here. Um, but the point is, like, what, and that actually gets to my question just more broadly about, you know, what you do. I mean, you've probably written you know, thousands of columns. I was reading about this Walter Lippmann from the, uh, you remember Walter Lippmann? The, from New York, yeah. Yeah, journalist, of, political commentator, advisor to multiple presidents. I was reading about them yesterday because it was his 130th birthday and it was a thing I sent around in another context. And he, he, had ri- he wrote 4,000 columns. And so that's sort of my, my intrigue is like something like these words, which are pretty harsh in 1997, you don't even remember him 22 years later. Like, water under the bridge at this point, it sounds like. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny because every once in a while, and as we said before we begin this podcast, I worked for a year at the West Hill Evening News, and then I worked seven years in Maine to Seattle. So I was covering a, a gazillion high school events uh, in Westfield, Bitterford, and Portland. And every once in a while, I'll get a letter from somebody that says, hey, you wrote a piece on me when I was at Sanford High School, and they, they enclose a copy of the story. And I love that because I can reread the piece, and, you know, you pick up the mistake. Oh, I would do that now. But then you, 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 you see a story. Oh, I remember that. That's so cool. And it, it's like going down memory lane. It just happened a few days ago. I had to, um, for another piece I'm doing, I had to go through the archives of the Hartford Current to find something I wrote when I covered the Yankees and the Red Sox in the 80s. And I had to find a specific story 
uh, about something, and it was I, I had no recollection of ever having written the story. <laughs> nothing, nothing in it stood out. But again, I was covering 140 games, 150 games in those days, and that's that's the pregame column, the 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 right through column, the notebook. I mean, that's a lot of stuff you write. Yeah. So, in in the grand scheme of your, of the people you've covered, Calipari does, does is it fair to say does not rank toward the top of your of the of the sort of foes you've made? Oh, I don't I don't consider Calipari a foe. I mean, I just that was all on day's work. I was doing my job. I don't even know. I mean, this is my pet answer for that. There, there obviously, if you write a sports column for a living, you automatically half the people who read it are going to hate you, and it's it's the same thing as writing a book. President Trump, for instance, if you if you write anything about President Trump that has any kind of an opinion to it, half the people despise you right off the bat. And in fact, not to go off on a tangent, but I made a decision about a year ago because I'm I'm to the left on a lot of things, and I made a decision because somebody wrote me a very eloquent letter saying, "Hey, you took this shot at Trump in your column the other day. I'm I'm in full agreement with you politically, but sports are my escapism, and I really." want to be able to read a sports column without it getting into politics and it was well written it was thoughtful and i've toned down the politics in my column other than to write about politics that invade sports like taking a knee for the national anthem that you kind of have to write about it um but as far as me having foes it's i i i'd put myself in an early grave if i kept score as to who i like and i don't like i genuinely don't take it personally and and people can choose to believe that or not, but it's just it's just wasted energy on my part. I believe that, but I interesting. I mean, I think the thing about Calipari that makes him unique is he stri- We had him on the show, which was a classy thing of him to do. He strikes me as a person who I think in the last five or ten years this has changed, but certainly prior to that, I think he he was a scorekeeper. I mean, that was. I mean, that that was what fueled him. I mean, Marty, I've talked to Marty Dober about this at some length. And like he just talks about, you know, I mean, just the the he everything was deeply personal. And he, he says it's almost in an admiring way now. In retrospect, it's just Calipari was so intensely invested in every aspect of that program that especially when he's in his you know early 30s, that I think like I think now he's probably let it go. But. It, and it cuts the other way too, where where with his loyalties, and it's what I always try to explain to people when I'm defending him, and we don't have to make this a Cal Perry show, but like, which it has become, but that's okay. It's hard not to if you're you, Matt, right? Like, I'm, <laughs> like that's what we got, you know. You got to you got to mind the the stuff that's there, but um, you know, he like when Milt Cole, do you remember Milt Cole, the Gazette? I did. knew Milt very well from the Daily Hampshire Gazette, and I was just going to bring him up because. At, at every presser that, that Coach Calipari did, he didn't need to wait for a question from Milt. He would point to Milt, <laughs> and, and he would frequently answer questions. He would say, well, you know, when we played TW last season, blah, 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 and the cool made that shot, he would say, right, Milt, you were there, and Milt would be beaming in the front row. And you know, clearly, Milt was someone that, that admired, and Milt was a great guy, and uh, but Milt was all for UMass, and that's fine. And then the flip side of that was, there was, a, you may remember this, there was a big stink that the Globe had written a piece and they published players, great point average. Yeah, Joe Burris, was it Joe Burris? Yeah, and they had a, uh, like, like Selection Sunday thing at the 
house, and I believe the Globe wasn't invited. Yeah, he iced and him out. <laughs> that, that was a big stink. I wasn't out there to cover that that day, um, but I remember that. So, so if if, if you speak of uh, a list of friends and enemies, you clearly have uh, Milk Cole on one side, and maybe Joe Burris, uh, whoever it was, the Boston Globe, on the other side. Well, and the story and of not, the story of Mill was he died at, right after Cal left, and Cal. Unannounced, Cal unannounced uh, flies back to, or or takes a, you know, whatever he takes back to to sit shiva in the Jewish tradition, you know, after, you know, after someone's lost. And so he he unannounced goes to sit shiva for a guy at a circulation newspaper of, you know, 15, 20,000 subscribers. Like, so there is that sense of like, you know, as much as his animus can go one way, his, his warmth can go the other way. And it's, and and I just, I mean, and, and to, and, and to prove it, that Coach Cal, when I was a student at UMass, I, I knew Mill Cole. I mean, I'd met him. I, I worked with Collegiate. But, in, and again, we talk about Western Mass and Eastern Mass and being an anime in the hotel. Well, to me, as a student at UMass, if Gary Brown came out to a UMass game from the, from the Springfield Union, uh, now the Republican, but if, if, if Gary Brown came out, or Jerry Ratting, or Milk Cole from the Daily Hampshire Gazette, Jack O'Neill from Channel, was he? Yeah, well, Jack O'Neill was a radio guy, and he was the he was the PA announcer at the games. Yeah, yeah, hungry. He grew up in Hungry Hill in Springfield. And I, I mean, I, I, I knew these guys because, to me, as a 19-year-old kid, man, these were these were icons. And so I always, when I got older, and I'm like this veteran sports columnist in Boston, going out to UMass, I didn't look at Milt as this fuddy-duddy from a small circulation paper. I looked at him as, that's, that's damn Milt Cole over there. And I was always very solicitous to him because he knew of him, uh, because I knew him as, as a young sports writer, collegiate sports writer, and I put him on a pedestal. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I remember as a kid, Gary Brown had the uh, hitting to all fields column. Hitting to all fields. And he always had the chocolate. <laughs> the uh, retrievers loved chocolate chip cookies line. And and then he had like the add blank to my all time favorite names. My all time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to I be honest, by the time I was. That was probably also my uh, my my foray into uh, any sort of literary criticism. But but when I was seventeen, I was like, all right, I think uh, I think this this is this is a little bit tired now because it was the same column, tw- like Tuesdays and Fridays or whatever it was. It was the same hitting to all fields. But he had so much. That guy had incredible amounts of history. He had his, I mean, I you know, and like because there's a lot of things that my parents weren't from Western Mass, so things like the Bonacati era, you know, like there's a lot of things like you, that just become part of lore as you, or even like, I just missed Travis best. So like he would be a good guy to recall a lot of that stuff. Um, let's talk for a second about, you know, the landscape, you've been covering the Boston scene for a long time. And I think there's kind of a hardened, uh, you know, wisdom about the way in which college sports works in new England. And that it's this sort of secondary thing that, you know, people are peripherally into, you got some college hockey is a cool thing at the bean pot, but at least since the sort of rise of the Patriots in 01 and then everybody else getting good, it seems like college sports has really taken a back burner, which for me is unfortunate because it's just not, I'm, that's what I'm passionate about first and foremost. What's the ceiling kind of in today's Boston, not only in the Boston media landscape, but just in this, in the 
state of Massachusetts, like, what's the highest you can get college sports to again, realistically? Wow. I mean, it. I mean, first of all, a team has to get really good, and it has to stay good. And the staying good is the hard part. Getting good, as odd as it sounds, is a little easier because you can you can have that magical run that that absolutely that that UMass has, that uh, Marcus Camby and those guys. But the staying good is, is where trouble lies. And see, football has had its ups and downs. And you go back to when I was a kid, uh, when I, growing up in Cambridge, uh, you know, the Harvard-Yale game in 68, uh, when they were both tied uh, 29-29, that was a major national sports story, and that's Harvard. So there was a time, and, and, and Boston College, when they had uh, Mike Esposito and Keith Barnett, uh, long before Doug Floaty, uh, those were some great teams. And uh, you, you know, Julius Irving in the early 70s with UMass. But again, the staying staying good is the hard part. Uh, by way of example, I remember when Boston College was in the NCAA tournament. And first round, they're down in Winston-Salem. They played, I think, Georgetown in the first round. And the night before the game, Gene DeFilippo took us all off to dinner, all the media people, and Bob Ryan was there, I was there, and various other people. And Ted Sarandis, God love him. Yes, Sox talk. Big, 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 yeah, I did the Sox talk, but he was the voice of BC at the time, and he was a huge college basketball fan. And he sat there at the dinner table for 20 minutes. There were 20 of us, this big one. And he was outlining in no uncertain terms how BC can become the Duke of the North. <laughs> and I said, Ted, you are nuts. I mean, and, and I, I wrote a column on it. And I said, if you take the reason why BC will never be the Duke of the North is because if you go to Durham, North Carolina, if you take Duke out of Durham, all, all you've got is the Durham Bulls. They get the baseball team. And I wrote that column, of course, the Durham Bulls were all upset. And they actually invited me to come down to a Durham Bulls game, which I did the next summer. And I was <laughs> That's a, my in-laws live in uh, right outside Durham. That's a great place to watch a game. Oh well, yeah, it, it, yeah. I mean, I, I actually played at the DAP, the old ballpark, and, and uh, an over thirty team. We took a bus down there just to play, in it, so I could say I played at the DAP. That's the Durham Athletic Park. Now they're at the, the new park with the big wall and all that stuff, and the tobacco place off to the left. And, uh, but really, if you, if you look at that area, there's, there's Chapel Hill and there's Durham, and they have Tobacco Road and the two big basketball powers, but they don't have big league sports in that region. Right? They've, and they have NC State, too. I mean, it's really a three-region, yeah, yeah three-town region. And, uh, so, so you go to Boston, and not only are there four big league teams, but especially in this century, all four teams have, been, have won championships. They've had iconic players. It's just nuts. And... The, the four teams have combined for 12 championships this century. And I've been, I've personally been all 12 championship games, and that's really cool. But there's so much attention directed at that, that in order for a college program to muscle in on that territory, it really takes a lot. And I'll never forget, back in 2007, I had friends in town, and we were going to go to a Baltimore Orioles-Red Sox game with fans. We had tickets. And we were going to go to a night game. Well, as it turned out, I had to cover the damn BC Wake Forest game in the afternoon. So I go to the BC Wake Forest game, and Matt Ryan throws five touchdown passes against Wake Forest. I bang out the column, hop in the car, 
drive down to Finn White Park, get inside the top of the first inning, sit with my friends. That's the night that Clay Buckholz threw the no-hitter against the Orioles, called third strike, Nick Marquegos to end the game. So the reason I know this so well is because I've written it a bunch of times. On the 6 o'clock news, the lead sports story was Matt Ryan throwing five TT passes against Wake Forest. On the 11 o'clock news, the lead story was Clay Buckholz no-hitter. So even in that little moment, when, when Matt Ryan has statistically his greatest game as a Boston College Eagle, he was not even the lead story the next morning. And it's just an illustration of how hard it is to muscle in on that territory uh, in Boston with all the pro sports. Uh, uh, and that there. whole season, I mean, like if you look, because BC at one point was like 8-0, 9-0, whatever it was, that whole season they struggled to get any coverage because – uh, you know, the Sox were basically the end of that streak for BC. So when they're 8 no, it's like late October or whatever it is, coincides with Red. It was the obligatory Florida State game or something. Uh, I remember in the rain. It was- yeah, that was when they eventually lost. But, but you had, you know, basically you had the Red Sox and the Rockies. And then the Pats had begun. I think that was the year they'd begun the 16-0 and season. Uh, no, I wrote a whole book on it. Wicked good year. It was, uh, I wrote an entire book. On Boston sports, from the fall of 07 to the spring of 08, when you had the Red Sox winning the World Series, followed by the Bruins, uh, the Patriots going 16 and all, and then losing the Super Bowl to the New York Giants, followed by the retooled Big Three uh, with the Celtics uh, just annihilating the uh, Lakers in Game Six of the NBA Finals, and all that happened in about seven months. It was crazy. Yeah, so. The staying power, when you say, I mean, do you think, how, how long does staying good entail? I mean, because the, the UMass was good for five, six, I mean, there's seven straight tournaments, I think, in the mid-90s. Like, that's what I try to explain to people who didn't follow it. It's like, look, that's, you know, that's enough to get a lot of people, to get a generation of kids, at least in Western Mass, pretty hooked. But in this era, it might, do you think it, do you think it requires even more than that? Well, Look at it. Um, as I recall, uh, they, they first made some noise. Then with the NIT, was it maybe 88 and 89? And then they're in the tournament. And uh, suddenly in 95, uh, that's the last year they had Derek Kellogg. And I'm going from memory and They lost the big country yeah. tournament. Yeah. And I, I think it was that tournament appearance was what uh, propelled them. And then, they, and then they beat North Carolina. Um, they beat North Carolina actually in 93-94. 93-94, okay. And then they were a two-seed that year and lost to Joe Smith-led Maryland team in Wichita. Yeah, I got to know what I'm up against. Yeah, that's – I mean, you got the Boston stuff at your fingertips. I got nothing. I'm just – this is I my – I thought I'd get props or I remember the big country. No, it was good. That was good. But on this show, like <laughs> – this is for people, you know, this is basically like the real, you know, freaks. Like, this is... Yeah, and all your freaks are going to, yes, nobody's talking about... No, 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 no. Every, everyone pretty much, you know, I, everyone pretty much... People say UMass fans are delusional or whatever, and, like, there are some of those, but most UMass fans at this point pretty much get it, and, like, anytime there's even a hint of good coverage from the ball, you know, the fact that you're doing this will, will probably um, win you, you know, plaudits, because... But anyway, so... I don't want it to earn me plaudits because you said at the beginning of this interview that you you were a little iffy on the athletic because it was all about subscriptions. So in that spirit, <laughs> I don't want plaudits. I want all of your listeners to go read my UMass football column and subscribe to the athletic so I can be the 
beacon of joy at the athletic offices down in New York. Well, it's good, and like it's we also like I think like as UMass man, UMass Twitter we call it, but like has a sort of solidarity because there's like there's this critical mass where it's like just enough of us where it it's not totally absurd. You're not like it's not like Westfield State or Amherst College or something, but it's it's too few to be like. You know, it's it still feels like a, a niche thing where it's like so it's kind of it's kind of at a good place right now. And I, I sometimes I'm curious, like what's going to happen if UMass gets really good? How will that like change? Because, you know, we, we sort of can control the message a little like. <laughs> but um, yeah, if, I, if I were you, I, I would have UMass get good first and then worry about nah, it. No, believe me, it's it's a, it would be a wonderful problem to have. I'm 99 percent. And, and by the way, just just to be abundantly telling, because you you, you kind of went after me in the Calipari thing earlier, and that's cool. But oh, I didn't mean to go after you. I mean, no, that's fine. You can say whatever you want. But my my point is that just just to be abundantly clear on this, that when, when it comes to fandom, I, I can't lie. Of course, I want UMass to win, and I'm not just a, a, a my interests go way beyond football and basketball. I mean, I I knew Dick Berkowitz very well over the years uh, after I graduated from UMass. And I was rooted to UMass baseball, and I got my start at the collegiate covering the wrestling team for no other reason than because my roommate was on the wrestling team, and nobody would cover wrestling for the collegiate. So Dave Amato, who was the wrestling coach back then, asked always wrestlers, go find someone who would do this. My roommate Dave Daly, whose birthday is today, um, we still stay in touch, and he asked me if I would do it. So. So I covered wrestling, and then Judy Van Hino gave me a call for next semester, and that's why we're talking now. That's how my career started. But when UMass dropped wrestling uh, after I graduated, I was deeply hurt by that because I, I always tell people I got my start. I've had a wonderful 41-year career. I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I love my professional life. And it all goes back to UMass wrestling. And so just to give you an idea of how much I love UMass sports, that I would mourn the passing of a wrestling team. You should tell you all you need to know. You know, full is true story. I did not know until this very moment. I did not know that UMass ever had a wrestling team. Oh God, they had a run. They had a run of like six or seven years. With six or seven consecutive years, they had the um, New England Unlimited Wrestling Champion, Dennis Fenton, from Springfield Cathedral. Or maybe he went to classical and later coached at Cathedral, I forget. But he was a big star on the football team. But Dennis Fenton was a four-time New England champion. Uh, Dave Amato, who later coached the team, uh, I think was a New England champion in one of the lower weight classes. Uh, no, they had they had a very, very good wrestling program for years. Wow. Uh, also, also um, Milton Warren, the tight end from Cleveland Browns, was a New England wrestling champion for UMass. Wow. I mean, I did know who he was because he's considered one of the best football players ever at UMass, but I had no idea. He was a New England wrestling champion in the unlimited category from UMass. Would they get crowds? They, well, <laughs> well, it's funny you should ask because they did. They wrestled at Boyden, and nobody was covering wrestling from the collegiate. And then all of a sudden, I was just banging out five-page stories, and they would just run them. In the collegiate, so all of a sudden, you know, Matt Men topple Providence, you know, whatever, BC, <laughs> and uh, and and I was going to all the meets, and they were getting fine crowds. Yeah, and they, I mean, I'm not talking twelve thousand people, but for for a good quad meet, they'd get four or five, six hundred people there, and that place was rocking. It was fun. 
that's fun. I would I wouldn't put it on a on a par with you know it wasn't like cult like status like Arby's Gorillas were back then, but UMass wrestling in the in that time period they had some really good wrestlers and uh, and it was a really good program. Dave Amato uh, left and went to I want to say Brown after wrestling uh, was dismissed at UMass, but they had a wrestling room and all the. If you were a New England champion, you'd, you'd get a framed photo in the hallway outside the wrestling room, and it was kind of a like a UMass Wrestling Hall of Fame, and you'd walk down the hallway, and all those 8 by 10 framed photos would be there. It was really a cool thing. That's cool. Um, I mean, my my early my non football non basketball memories were as a kid were of the Danielle Henderson softball teams that were and then baseball is actually pretty good when I was a kid. They almost made the College World Series in the mid nineties. I mean, there was a lot going. That's a that whole era of the mid-90s at UMass, like, I think what Calipari did helped with every other program, too. But um, I guess talking about UMass football, because that's where we, we, we got started tonight, and that's sort of where we were heading when we talked about the region in general. Um, how, how, follow, how closely do you follow it? Uh, are you, like, a check-the-score-every-week guy, or are you kind of like, I'll... Yeah, that, in, in fairness, that's, uh, when, they were, when they were still 1AA... Uh, the two years that they went to Chattanooga, I, I followed them a lot more closely, and I did a lot of columns. Um, I went to Chattanooga both years. I got to know Don Brown. I got to know Mark Whipple. <clears throat> Excuse me, I've got a bit of a cold. Um, I did columns on William Cohen. I did column. I did a column on the uh, Hunters, Christian Kogel. Um, I, I can remember there, there was a whiteout from Somerville my hometown here that I did a column on, I forget his name, was it Quinn maybe? Irish name. And then there was an, another small guy from outside of Miami. And Adrian Zulo. Adrian Zulo, very good. Yeah. And um, uh, he was he was like from some, like, parochial school. Right like St. Thomas Aquinas, one of those powerhouse programs. Yeah, so uh, so I do remember this stuff. And I, so, so in fairness, I, in, in those years, when they were a 1AA powerhouse, I followed them with great interest and went to a lot of the games. And I was at the the UNH game that they won that sent them to Chattanooga. I think it was UNH. And once they made the, uh, once they went FBS, I was at the press conference and I actually broke that story that they were going FBS. Um, Someone had told me and then somebody confirmed it from the back and, and, you know, here we were. And I was at the press conference down in Gillette. I was never crazy about it, but I wasn't ringing the you know, ringing bells that they shouldn't do it. And it just never really got off to a, uh, a, a good start. And interest waned at my newspaper. So when they don't have me cover, when I cover something, I get invested. Right. Uh, I, I, when they send me out, they would send me out for the 25 years I was at the Herald. They had a policy that everybody had to cover a high school football game. So every, on Thanksgiving. So oh, I like that. I like that policy. Every Thanksgiving, the high school sports editor would, would call me up and say, you're going to do the so-and-so, so-and-so game. And I would, you know, Stoneham versus, I think, Reading and Lynn, uh, Boston English, Boston Latin, Cambridge Rinch and Latin versus Everett back in the day. And I would, uh, Savio Prep, Austin Prep, these are some of the ones that I went to, Easty, Southie. And I would go to the game and get invested, and rather than just, you know, bang up some quick column. I would talk to some kid for 20 minutes, and I'd call his mother, and, you know, what did he eat this morning on the way to the park and, and all that. So <clears throat> I always get invested in the stuff that I cover. And in that spirit, 
I got invested in UMass football when they were one double A powers. Now that they're struggling, I am what you just said a few minutes ago. I'm, I'm a check the score guy, and I do. I check the score every Sunday. Um, if the headline catches my attention, I'll read the game story. Um, but I don't go beyond that. I don't listen to the uh, podcasts. I don't. Uh, I don't. I don't go to the website religiously. But I would do that a while back, but not now. And that's just because I've got all this other stuff to do and I'm not invested right now. I mean, to be honest, that's me at this point. Like, I got a, a three-year-old, and since after the Rutgers game, I just knew, like, this year was kind of a wash with, you know, uh, I know the storylines, I'll catch up on it, but it's like, you know, if it, it's, it's, it's difficult right now. I'm not Zach, you know. I mean, um, but I guess a better question, because you know I... That Zach- Tackled Victor Cruz in high school. I, I did not know that until your story, and I didn't want to give it away to the readers because, I mean, for our listeners, that's the lead. I mean, that's like, I mean, it is the lead in your story, too, but that, that's the whole story. <laughs> um, well, I, I even said in the story that um, the other guys, Mike Locay, I forget. I Mike Lacapo. Yeah, that, that he should have been the lead of the story because he's a bit more upset about UMass football than Zach is. But as I said, right, I, 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 would, I, I broke the fourth wall. I'm the first person. I said, look, I should probably lead the story with this guy, but you gotta, you got to lead with this guy, uh, Zach, because he tackled Victor Cruz in high school. So sue me. And uh, so that's why I went that direction. That, and that dynamic periodically plays out on Twitter because Zach is, I mean, he's not eternally optimistic, but he's more op, he's certainly not more optimistic than uh, Lacapo. But um, so anyway, my question, though, is using you as like a bit of a proxy, a little bit of a bellwether for, for fandom and, and uh, sort of attention regionally, what would it take for you to, Let's not necessarily say, you know, come up and tailgate every game, but a I'm at least like going to be checking more methodically and maybe come up to two games a year fan. Like what, what, what what's the kind of threshold that you'd have to see UMass get to for for you to get sort of that next level of investment? Oh, it's an easy answer. You, I, I don't need to give you numbers. I can just give you one word and the word is relevant. If if, if UMass was relevant to the degree that the Boston-based columnists for the athletic needed to be out there, I would be out there. I was out there in the spring because the hockey team was great guns. And I went out there and I spent a whole day there and had a wonderful time. And, and again, any time I'm out at UMass, it, it's a day off for me, even if it's in a professional capacity. Um, I'll tell you a quick story that, that is... Um, I usually tell at banquets, but in the on the media day for the 95-96 season in basketball, I went out there as a Herald columnist, and there was a kid named Mike Reese. He's a very famous Sure. I keep going. I'll tell you about that. Keep going. And he was an intern in the SID's office back then, and he introduced himself to me, and can I do anything for you? Do you need anything? And he, he, he brought up Marcus Canby. He brought up Dana Dingle, you know, whoever I needed. And he was very, very helpful. And at the end of all this, I said, look, you've been really helpful. I'd like to take you out to dinner. And he said, oh, that'd be great. And I said, yeah, we can walk. And we're walking and walking. He's like, well, where are we going? And I took him to the Worcester Dining Common up by Northeast because I hadn't obviously eaten at the Worcester Dining Common since I graduated in 78. And I thought it would be really cool. Of course, he later told me that he said, 
said, but the reason I moved off campus was because I didn't want to use the Western Dining Hall. <laughs> but now they have the world-class dining options. But the reason I tell you that story is, is that that's kind of made the rounds among some of the students at UMass. When I was out there in the spring to do the hockey story, I met Amin Khoury, who's now the editor of the Collegiate. And again, a former guest of this program. <laughs> He's a great guy. And he said, when I was done with the hockey, he said, hey, I'd like to take you out to lunch. Uh, I want to return the favor of what you did with Mike Reese. And he took me to the Worcester Dining Commons. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so in 1995, I had lunch at the Worcester Dining Commons with Mike Reese. In 2019, Thousand years later, I had lunch at the Western Dining Common with a meat store. So that's kind of cool. So my Mike Reese story is that uh, they used to have this thing called the Hagus Hoopla, which was a three-on-three tournament. Yeah. And uh, it was a big tournament on the Hagus Mall. The sports management program put it on. So I'd play every year. My parents would just sort of drop me off, and I'd run around for the weekend because it was two full days, and there was you know all sorts of divisions, and college kids would come out. It was a whole scene. And one and one of the competitions um, that they had, they had like a center stage thing, and uh, Mike Reese was the MC. And one of the things they did was, and I, I've long joked because it's it's true, but I, I'm a I'm a two-time back-to-back uh, champion in the uh, announcing competition. At they would give you a script, and you'd read like you know you know, he shoots, he scores type of thing, you know, uh, and I did it two years in a row and I won, uh, one year I won an Eric Montross autographed <laughs> picture <laughs> and the next wow. year <laughs> and the next, cause he was a Celtic very briefly. Um, and the next year I won a, uh, pair of new balance basketball sneakers. Cause new balance was trying to get into basketball at that point. It was a very short lived thing, but Mike was the, was the guy. And you just, you kind of even knew back then, like I was like 10, 11, whatever. He was a college kid. And I was like, and you just kind of knew like, Oh, this guy has a real good command of things. Like he's, he's got, the, he's got the chops. And so I would always follow, follow him when he was at Patriots weekly or whatever it was. And then onto the Herald and then he's been at ESPN forever so um, it's it's he, he's really talented you just reminded you an entirely different story that's a complete segue but what what's the radio station in Northampton GW at, well, at least when I was a kid it was WHMP 1400 that's it that's it so when I was a student at UMass I lived in Sylvan and they had this contest and the contest was was you you would be a radio station employee if you if you sent in a postcard with your name and phone number and if they if they announced your name over the air and called in within an hour you would become uh, a W is it HMP WHMP yep you would become a WHMP employee until the next hour when they would read up somebody else's name and if that person didn't call in you would remain an employee and you would get paid $20 an hour or something. And they read my name off one day because I sent in a postcard. And and for two hours, I was a WHMP employee. It wasn't really just a gimmick. Uh, and then after two hours, somebody else called in. So I got a check for $20 when I was a junior in UMass and WHMP. So I was kind of proud of that. That's a good little gimmick, actually, for a radio station. <laughs> I don't hate that. It was, it was very 70s. <laughs> yeah, I don't hate that at all. Um, so... But but you say relevance, and I just want to drill down a little bit further before we go. Um, in terms of, like, relevance is, 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 is amorphous, right? Like, how do you define relevance? Is that seven wins? Is it a bowl game? Is it, 
you know, I mean, meaningfully competitive is, or is it, because relevant, like in the region at this point is probably like a preposterously high bar until Tom Brady's retired. I mean, what does relevant actually mean? Relevant would mean, A, you win a lot of games, B, you, you produce an iconic player who clearly is, quote-unquote, going places, which brings us right back to BC football, mid-'80s, UMass basketball, mid-'90s. The common thread is they had that player. They had Marcus Gamby on the basketball side, and in Boston they had Doug Flutie. Now, there were, there were other players. I mean, I think uh, everybody was saying back in the mid-'90s that, that uh, Trevieso and Padilla were the best backcourt in the country. So there was that. BC had uh, Mike Ruth, who won the Elwin Trophy, and they had, you know, obviously Phelan with the great catch. So it wasn't just Doug Flutie. It wasn't just Marcus Camby. They had a, uh, uh, you know, I guess the only thing they didn't have was guard depth, as we saw in the Kentucky game. Um, when uh, I think Padilla was hurt, Trevieso so got to follow trouble or the other way around, I forget. And Goodell but, Padilla came in off the bench. And Goodell came and, and, and by the way, the one complaint that I might have is that Goodell, right? Goodell, yeah. He wasn't, and he was the older brother, I think. He clearly wasn't as good as Edgar. Edgar was a, Edgar was a really slick player. Um, but maybe if the other brother had played more and was during the season, he might have been better equipped. That's just me thinking out. No, I've thought I've thought that many times. I mean, and there's a there's a long there's a there's a school of thought that's you know i've heard that like he and calipari had a strained relationship and like i've never i I wish i got to ask cal about it when he came on the show because uh, that and mike williams's dismissal are really the two uh things about that era that especially because i was young i've just never really gotten to sort of to the bottom of but i always remember uh, like i said i covered so many games that year and and, and Goodell would come in with 36 seconds remaining and 42 seconds remaining. I mean, I'm just making up numbers here. Um, but, but maybe if they'd given him more minutes during the season. But, you know, again, they're, they're, they're a national power at that point. You, you, it wasn't like when it was happening, I would say, hey, put the other Padilla in. It, it didn't occur to me to ask it then. This is only me asking the question after the fact. So. It, it's not a burning issue that bothered me over the years. It's only going to just happen to come up here. Yeah. Um, I guess lastly, the, the the school of thought, there's really two schools of thoughts when UMass hires head coaches, in, in, I mean, at least in the kind of revenue sports. One is, um, particularly in football, is, you know, you got to get a New England guy. You got to get, you know, get somebody who sort of understands who we are, what we are, what we're about. And then there's the school of thought, which I think Ryan Bamford, the current AD, is has shown a propensity for, which is a little bit more aspirational in the, which aspirational but perhaps risky in terms of, I mean, both his men's basketball coach and his first football hire in Walt Bell, are guy mid 30s guys with southern roots, um, you know, with ties to major programs, kind of going for slant, you know slam dunks or Calipari types, if you, if you will. Um, do you think in having observed this stuff over the years with all sorts of programs, but do you think there's like a, a formula for getting the right guy to, to lead these programs at UMass or, or it can come from, can it I come? don't know if there's a formula, but I, I do not agree with the notion that you need to hire a local guy who understands the region. I thought it was great. They hired Derek Kellogg from Springfield, uh, 
not only the local guys, the local guy who played at UMass, and I liked him personally. And I, uh, I remember writing, I, I hope he doesn't stay there because if he stays there, it means he's going to be a 500 coach, and it means, I mean, the game against Tennessee was over like a minute and a half into it, but uh, and we were all excited about that, and that boom, it was gone, it was over, and. But what what if they had been like this 500 team, 500 team, five, and Derek Kellogg stays there for X number of years? I wanted him to have enormous success for two or three years and then do what coaches do, move on to the better program or the bigger program and become famous. So, um, so that was a case where hiring the local guy appealed to me. But I don't require it. You go out, you go, you go out but listen, Bamford's job is, is to build a program. Not to make people in the in, in the area, but a local kid. Walt Bell was what offensive Florida State. Uh, whatever he said, whatever credentials he brought to the table, killed to Ryan Bamford. Uh, I've only met Walt once, alumni event in Boston at the Colonnade. So I don't know what he's all about. I do know, by the way, for what this is worth, that a, a lot of Florida State people were were jumping in on the column I wrote for the Athletic and they were not they were not big Bell fans. And I can't put that down or applaud that because I don't know what the background is. I think they're just grumpy Florida State fans. They had a lousy season last year. He was the offensive coordinator, so I guess blame him but something I know about that. That's about the thrust of it, yeah. But but beyond that, I do not require um, I mean let's look at all the teams in, in, in the all the college programs around here. If we were to do an accounting of guys who are born and raised in the area and which guys aren't, and I'm not equipped to do that, I, I don't know if I can come up with a list saying, oh, well, the teams with local coaches have had more success than the programs. I mean, Calipari is from, what is he, from New York? Calipari. Calipari's a Pittsburgh kid. Pittsburgh, I, you're correct. And uh, so, so clearly he was the right guy at the time as opposed to, um, a, a local coach that they might have hired. I don't know who the candidates were back then. But Calipari was a young, ambitious guy. I mean, he built the Mullins. I mean, not physically, but the rim he built necessitated the Mullins for him. And although I do miss the Tark Banks cage, I mean, that's a I mean, the name of my pro, I mean, you know, that's, that's my whole, that's my whole alter ego. But I mean, I'm, I'm with you broadly speaking, but I'm a little bit of two minds just in the sense that, I mean, if you look at like Ed Cooley and at Providence, that's an interesting, it's not analogous because UMass is, we can get into this another time, but UMass is a really unique program in the sense that it's a flagship state university in a region where the other pro play, where the other college players other than UConn are, you know, uh, private Catholic schools. And there is something to be said about, I mean, if you, as, now that we're so far removed from the Calipari days, we're 25 years removed now that, you know, you got to kind of get a guy, I think on some level who understands what, what the, what the place is about to a certain degree, um, because it, it's not easy to recruit to UMass. It's, it remains, you know, a challenging dynamic and um mccall you know after two years i don't know how how much you followed the minutia of the day-to-day but after the difficult season last year he he got rid of his whole staff and one of the guys he brought in is a is a dynamic high school coach from the springfield area uh, originally named tony bergeron and 
you know, you can hear it a little just in the way he talks. Like he gets sort of what UMass is and and where it can be, even if it's not ever going to get there again. He at least sort of has this vague notion of it, and I think it, it can be. Let me let me just jump in because I, I I don't disagree with the notion that that having a guy with local roots for who at least understands the the scenery, the neighborhood, that that's a big help. And I'll give you two examples where it's worked where it worked historically. For, for years and years, I, mean, I covered the bean pot for a thousand years, and for most of that time, Jerry York at Boston College, who went to Boston College, who grew up in Watertown, and you got Jack Parker at Boston University, who went to Boston University, and he grew up in Magoon Square in Somerville, and who knows Greater Boston and Greater Boston College hockey better than Jack Parker and Jerry York, so props to them for understanding that, they both had huge, they both won championships and so forth, but as far as, as far as UMass goes, again, it, it's just a guy coming in. I don't care where he's from, but it behooves him to, to learn the market, right. to get educated about it. And if, if you focus solely on basketball, then, then that's not going to do it. And, and again, this is where we give Coach Calipari his club. He, he knew Milk Cole. He didn't, he didn't just see him as a local sports writer. He saw him as a local sports writer to be respected and, and to get to know. And he got to know me. He got to know Tony Anzorati. I mean, I didn't, I didn't have the relationship with Milton at all, obviously. Um, but clearly, to his credit, and again, if I didn't write this back then, it's because I just think it was kind of obvious, Calipari came in and got to know the area. He got to know what UMass was all about. I think his daughter went to UMass. I think um, both daughters, actually. Yeah. And um, one of whom I met this summer, I happened to bump into her or something. But, uh, so, yeah, I, I give Calipari a lot of credit for that. Although, he always called UMass, UMass. Do you ever notice that? You mean? Instead of calling, I call it UMass, and he called it UMass. He had the emphasis on the U. Uh, I've never, I've never actually noticed that. Yeah, that was just something that jumped out to me. And that's not a criticism, just an observation. Uh, actually, before, while we're on that topic, real quickly, a uh, big topic of conversation among the uh, fans of this program. UMass, are you as do you find UMass Amherst as disgusting as we do? To put the word Amherst in there? Yes. Oh no, I'm I'm solely in bed with the it's UMass. Yeah, I mean it's it's so this is like you know the new branding of the university. The folks are have really hammered home this UMass Amherst thing. And if you talk to kids, really like. 27 and under maybe even 28 29 like it's, it's been going on a while now and they're not you know tapped into umass athletics which many are not um they'll just say yeah i went to umass amherst not batting an eye and it's just like stunning to me like it's a it's a yeah, well I, I had i i had two doses of that one is what we're talking about now but also i worked for the portland press Herald for five and a half years and up in maine uh if you were to write UMaine Orno, you'd get your hands cut off. I mean, it's just UMaine or UMO. And you have UMaine Farmington, UMaine Presque Isle, UMaine this, UMaine that. But there's only one UMaine. It's just UMO or Maine. And to call it UMaine Orno, it, it, it looks bad, it sounds bad. And so I'm of the, I'm of the camp that, and again, I'm a, I'm a graduate, so I, I have, that's, my, that's the lens through which I see this. It's UMass. Yeah. I, I, I actually think I want to go out on that because 
<laughs> that's something we try to we try to hammer home a lot, and it it, come, it means more coming from you. Is there anything you want to plug before you go uh, besides athletic subscriptions? <laughs> I did not plug athletic. No, I did. I'm 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 telling you earnestly. Like you don't have to feel any shame in that. I'm saying honestly, read the athletic. It's good. No, I'm I'm I am so loving the athletic. It's it's uh, it's it's a very very good product it's it's worth the four dollars a month whatever it is that you pay for it and you get to read stuff from all around the country free on your own page and uh, and i hope that your listeners will subscribe to it not just because of the umass piece um but also because of the other stuff that we do and uh anybody who wants to email me sbuckley at theathletic.com and i'll I respond to all my email and, and the other thing is um the, you when you sign up, it asks you like which are your favorite teams to follow, right. and the athletic takes a lot of you know pride in sort of their tech roots. So they they probably monitor that in some sense, and if they see an uptick in UMass fan subscriptions, you know perhaps we'll see a resulting uptick in coverage. I don't want to tell them how to do their job, but maybe that's part of it. Well, if you can deliver the, the uptick in wins, <laughs> you get the uptick. I unfortunately I have very little control over the uptick in wins. <laughs> But uh, I think this will be, an, I mean, I would say, I think there's a good chance of UMass basketball being in the NCAA tournament as soon as 2021. And I would dare say likely in 2022. I'm putting those high expectations out there now so that everyone can consider themselves sufficiently warned. But, you know, there is some notion that UMass fans are perpetually waiting for next year. So um, be that as it may, I think that good times are a little bit around the corner and football, I think 21, 22. So hopefully you'll still be at the athletic then and things will be, you know, because hockey is humming. So by, by that point, maybe we'll have three really good sports and, and your subscriptions from UMass fans will be through the roof. I would love that. And I, I do get to at least one basketball game a year. Um, I don't know which one ones I'm going to this year, but I will be out there. And uh, you should go, you know, where you should go, go to the game at Harvard. I was at the, they, they played a year or two ago. Was it last year or the year before I went to the UMass at, at uh, Yeah, two at years ago at Harvard, and it's always like 90% UMass fans, which is really fun. Yeah, it's, it's actually fun. It's, it's like a, I could walk there from my house, and it's actually a fun place to watch basketball. Too. December 7th. The tickets are actually almost sold out because of the place. I will be so, there. Yeah, so be there. be there. All right. Will you be there? Uh, I... Well, you know what? Maybe I'm now announcing this. I have a kid due. I haven't announced it to the listeners. I have a, I have a second kid due on December 10th. So I have two tickets to my name. But you know, it's fortunately, my wife doesn't listen to this podcast, so we will uh, pretend you know I didn't announce that publicly. But consider this. Uh, you, this is breaking news right here. Here you go. All right. Yeah, common sense tells me you would not be at that game. I, I, if, if I'm at that game, there's real there's real problems in, in my marriage. Exactly. All right. <laughs> Thank you very much, sir. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. All right. Take it easy. All right. See ya. It's time for Sam the Mailman, your UMass Athletics mailbag updates. Okay mailbag time let's go to the questions we begin tonight with tyler o'day uh tyler of course a somewhat of a personality at barstool himself and a umass alum uh, something of a nemesis for 
Dave Portnoy, the founder of that uh, website, and uh, he asks, do you love me? I don't know. Love is a pretty serious concept. I'm I'm not sure how many people I genuinely love. I love UMass Twitter as a collective and what it represents. As far as individual level, I mean, I like Tyler. I like him a lot. We had a great time at the Rutgers game, but I think to love someone, there has to be a little bit more. So uh, it's not out of any particular animus toward Mr. O'Day, but uh, love is is not quite the um, the term I would I would use. It sounds like my wife might be at the at the door. Hang on, let me uh, let me see who's at my uh, at my door. Uh, hold on. Who is it? Who is it? Hello? Hello? I'm not convinced it's her, so I'm not letting that person in. Um, maybe she got in on her own. Anyway, um, Jason Levitt says, We never fired DK. What is the state of the program? We never fired DK. What is the state of the program right now? What is this season coming up look like? This is a fun hypothetical, actually. So, I mean... It's a really interesting one because this would be the season had all those dudes stayed where they would be seniors. And I think this that team, well, not all of them would have stayed. That never happens. It never goes down like that. But let's assume like, let's assume Deakey stays and Gresham and Ty Flowers. Like I feel like Baldwin might have been heading for the hills regardless. Pip wait, would Yeah, Pip would have been I guess Pip would have been a senior too. Wow. That team would have been fucking loaded. Um Okay, so so we're talking about Derek Kellogg and uh where he would have been if if or where this year's team would be if he was there. So the challenge with Kellogg was always that you kind of knew with his ability to recruit, there was a very good chance. And maybe it's not a problem. It depends on your perspective. There was a very good chance that every four or five years, he would have a really talented team that would, you know, make the NCAA tournament or contend for it. The challenge was that if they didn't, and they went to, let's say, consecutive NITs with a deep run in one of them, or even if they did go to the tournament, but they were bounced out in the first round, as happened in 2014, you sort of, the question sort of existentially was, all right, would you prefer a UMass program that goes to the tournament and or makes a deep NIT run every four to five years and then sort of languishes and underachieves in the years between? Or would you like the chance Will you take the chance of a little bit more consistency? Now, hindsight is twenty twenty, and right now I can understand why some might be saying, hmm, doesn't sound so bad. I still believe, and I've said this even with Walt Bell and Mark Whipple, which is analogous but in in kind of different ways because it's at a it's sort of at a lower scale. But I've said that I think like aspirational is at least somewhat aspirational is the only way to do it because otherwise it's just like you know, you're not, you're just sort of accepting where you are forever. And I know there's a small, there's a, sub, a subset of the fan base that thinks that maybe that's better for stability and just sort of like 
know who you are. And that also, if you try to be aspirational and fail, you fall further behind where you, where you would have been. Honey, is it further or farther? Babe? I guess she left. Um, shows how interested she is in this program. Um, so the point is that, uh, getting back to the actual roster composition, um, had those guys stayed and it's a big if I don't think all of them would have, um, you, you'd have a sensational core. I mean, you'd have Pipkins and Giroux would be very arguably the most talented backcourt in program history. Pipkins now at Providence, you know, after not this past season, but the year prior, I think being a first or I guess second team, all a 10 guy, Wait, no, was he not first team as like a 21-point per game score? That, that's insane if that was the case. But basically first team guy. And, and Giroux, you know, doing big-time stuff at, at a AAC school that was like a five or six seed last year. Maybe three seed, actually. Um, so, so plus Gresham, who's really legit at Houston, and then Turn Flowers, who's doing work at uh, – can you, baby, can you be a little quieter? I'm recording. Just can you open the package in your in our room? Thank you. Love you. Um, so, I, I mean, I would say if you had those guys and Flowers knocking down threes, who is who else was in that? Baldwin was the other guy in that class, and then I guess McLean probably. I don't know. He may be still on campus. It's hard to know because it's hard to know who Kellogg would have had coming in the next season at this point, right? Like you're, you're a few classes behind, but I'd have to assume that the tournament team, um, were right at the top of the A10. And this upcoming season looks really exciting, but also kind of like, well, he better win kind of deal. Cause it's sort of like, he probably wouldn't have made the tournament last year and you'd be like, okay, we gave him, you know, two extra seasons because we were waiting for this fresh, this class to materialize. Now they're seniors, you know, we've made it to an NIT, we've made it to whatever it's time. And it would be definitely NCAAs or bust. So it'd be a really pressure packed off season. And I think everybody would kind of know, like, he had to win. Um, so it would be fascinating to watch. But it's a, it's a, you know, it's solid. It's a solid question. Um, Jesse Allen, who is friends with, uh, with Jason Levitt, IRL, says, We never fired Lapis. What is the state of the program right now? What does this upcoming season look like? That one is obviously a little more tongue-in-cheek. At this point, there'd be talk of, uh, I know there's not promotional relegation in college basketball, but there'd be talk, uh, Steve, Steve Labus would have single-handedly, uh, you know, spurred broader national dialogue around promotion and relegation. And UMass would have been at this point, not only in division two, but they would have lost to like in their conference, they would have like been second to last to like Dowling or like. Who's even Indy 2 in the Northeast? Like Bentley or something? Bentley's probably fairly good. Dowling and like uh, Pace, they would have been, you know, um, languishing below them with, with the possibility of moving down to D3. No, actually, this is a bit of a hot take. Lapis's final year, if I'm not mistaken, was halfway decent. And Lapis was not like he had to go. 
But in retrospect, having looked at other coaches at UMass and other sports, what's shocking is that as much as Lapis took the program into the gutter, he was way better than Charlie Molnar, Micheletto in hockey, even, I would argue, Kevin Morris in football. So uh, in point of fact, he, he had enough ties around the game that he would have been like a little bit of a poor man's Phil Martelli where he... He had enough, you know, sort of quality assistants coming in and out of there that every four or five years they'd make an NIT run and one time get lucky and make a tournament. But you'd just be like consistently between 13 and 17 and like 19 and 12 forever. And Lapis, even when he was winning at Villanova, was notorious for losing early on in the tournament. So he would probably like have a couple seasons. I mean, because, wow, he, he got canned in, I guess the end of the 05 season is it was it 05 maybe he got canned no he got canned at the end of the oh yeah at the at the end of the 05 season yeah wow okay so by this point the end of the 20 season that have been another like 14 wait so Travis Ford was three sorry pardon my counting out loud here Travis Ford was three Derek Kellogg was nine McCall was Two, so that's so this has been 15 more seasons for Lapis. So you'd be going on season 19. There would have been a tournament appearance in there because you can't stick around if you don't, um, you know, win get to the tournament. So you probably would have made the tournament like in year seven and then again in like year 13. And at this point, God, that's fascinating to ponder just like what the state of the athletic program would have to be for him to have stuck around. Um, Bana Bandwagon commenter, great friend of the show. Um, when will John Rothstein break his silence regarding the impeachment inquiry? We're getting real snarky tonight. Um, he probably will not. He's probably one of those guys who's like sort of a stick to sports guy. Um, and uh, yeah. All right. So let's go back to the questions from last night. Um, I'm scrolling down a little bit more robustly. And let's see, we got a lot of mentions today. People promoting all sorts of shit. Uh, let's see here. All right, so we go back down to yesterday, and we get the following questions. Eric Friedlander inquires, good friend of the show, hung out with him at the Rutgers game, a lot of fun. He says, should we buy that the team is more connected? Sure seems that way based off of social media of team and players. So I think yes. Um, I think it helps that a few of them played high school together and came with their high school coach. Um, that I mean, that obviously helps because there's pre-established connections. Not to mention, I think it's pretty clear that by all accounts, Carl Pierre, uh, Samba Diallo, um, and uh, Jerry Baptiste are all, like, great, great kids. I think Cy Chapman is, from what I'm hearing, is, like, becoming a great kid himself. I think he was so young last year, and there were just so many dynamics surrounding that team that I think it was a little bit hard to know, like, exactly who he was. I mean, it just happens to freshmen. It's just like – I mean, and I also, by the way, I think you could see a huge jump from him this year because I think I think the the, the – guys leaving and a, a new culture around the program like will benefit him immensely plus just being 
you know, a year of experience. Cause he, he was like 17 when he, when he came here. I mean, he's real young. So, um, but so those three I mentioned, and then who's the other, oh, and, and, um, and Keon, like it was always just a grinder anyway. So you, you kind of kept the kids who really gave the most shits or that's how I see it. And then you added a few kids from the same high school who were already bought in and, and their coach. So really the only guys like that you sort of need to get to buy in are, um, East Jackson bugs who signed early and was like very clearly, you know, passionate about UMass in particular. Um, so I think like, there's no question there. And then Colton Mitchell and, uh, and then the other kid with the team now is, um, Debaji Walker, who, you know, will be sitting out this year, but he was another Tony Bergeron kid. So like the only three are Colton, Sean and CJ who are late signees. And I think the fact that they were late signees is in many ways beneficial because I think they'll appreciate the opportunity of getting a, a quality D1 offer late in the game. So I, I, you know, I don't actually take a whole lot from social media. I think every kid in the country is positive until it's, you know, week three of the season. They're a little bit tired. They're taking finals. Their friends are going home. And that's when you start, you know, seeing what the team is really made of. Uh, and when it comes to chemistry and, and I think, you know, um, that's when we'll really be tested, but I'm, I'm very encouraged by the roster composition because we know the kids who are back are bought in and it's pretty evident that, you know, Bergeron's guys are bought in and there's no reason to believe the others wouldn't be. So, um, I'm confident for those reasons. Jay Burnham voice of the Minutemen, asks what the attire is for the Harvard game. It's a very good question. Um, as you may have understood at the end of the, uh, Buckley interview, I may not actually be there. I may have to do a giveaway for tickets. It could, if you have a creative idea for how I should give them away, um, to a listener of this show, let me know. Cause I'd like to do something fun with it. Um, and, but there's a, there's a few approaches you could take to that. You have to assume UMass will be in the home whites. Uh, sorry, in the, in the, wow, that's funny. Actually, it's a little Freudian slip because they're, it's not actually a home game. So UMass will be in maroon, but Harvard is a maroon school. I know it's the crimson, but crimson and maroon are similar in, in tone. So I am a little torn here because if you go all maroon, you're sort of going de facto Harvard colors. If you go white, you're rocking Harvard's home jerseys. It's almost like maybe there's a play to do some sort of blackout. I, I think it might be, it might be, like a UMass Twitter, that might be the debut of a UMass Twitter t-shirt, because that really is the signature game for the UMass Twitter orbit, in terms of taking over a road opponent's gym, meeting one another, and just sort of like putting our uh, our mark on, on the, you know, regional fandom landscape. So maybe it's a special t-shirt if McKinney, friend of the show McKinney is listening, or um, Billy D. Mullins or the guy whose handle is actually UMass Twitter, all three of whom do uh, terrific work on um, Photoshop, which I really need to learn and probably, I worry I never will, but I need to take a tutorial or something, but I'm just not that artistic. Maybe Chris Tucci could help with this. We could design a t-shirt and then we could debut it at that game. That would um, bring, bring immense joy to my heart. Um, 
you know, I don't know if Jay was going this direction. Maybe he was thinking, like, you do some sort of play on, like, the Ivy League and you sort of mock Harvard by wearing, like, crimson blazers or something. But I just don't know if people would get the joke. It's maybe a little too niche. Do you get the, are the participation levels where you where you really want them to be on that? I, I'm not sure. So I think it's sort of a break out a nice like crisp white T-shirt with the UMass Twitter logo of some sort, and that that's kind of the play is is what I'm thinking. I'm thinking out loud, and I'm very much open to hearing the thoughts of um, of others on this one. It's a it's a very good question. Um, Zach is God, who came up tonight, of course, Zach Emery, in our conversation with, uh, with uh, Mr. Buckley, says, do you think Bamford, Swami, and Marty, referring to Chancellor Subaswamy, Athletic Director Ryan Bamford, and um, University System President Marty Meehan, feel like they have their hands tied when it comes to really providing athletics with the funding they know it needs to really be competitive at the highest levels of college athletics? Seems like they are afraid of the public perception. Um, I don't know what would suggest that they're afraid of it. I think that, look, all three of those positions, um, are very political in nature. I mean, you know, I think that all three of those men have shown themselves to be, uh, keenly adept at navigating their respective job posts, but none of those posts particularly lend themselves to, uh, you know, dynamically transformative, disruptive, if you want to call it that, action, right? I mean, there's a certain temperament, I think, that you have to have in those roles, which requires you to be um, very diplomatic and to, to navigate some tricky political waters. The only way you can be in one of those posts and do things that are way outside the box, I think, um, is frankly, if you're fabulously independently wealthy and just it doesn't matter, so you can take those sorts of risks. Um, you know, there's, there's certain politicians, I mean, frankly, Trump is one of them, Mike Bloomberg, and the former mayor of New York, they, they, they just, they're able to act outside of the norms for better or for worse, whatever you think of them because they are not, like, materially bound by their circumstances, right? Um, if, and, and it's not even necessarily, it wouldn't even necessarily be relevant at a university like that unless they were also donating. So you're, you're, I'm now conjuring up, like, a real crazy hypothetical to answer this. But the reality is, yes, they are in political positions. I mean, you know, you're running a state university system that's publicly funded, you're a chancellor of a flagship school that's publicly funded, and you're an athletic director at a school that's publicly funded. So you, you know, you, you operate within the confines of, of that. And the reality is, we all know how it goes every time there's a story about, you know, the highest paid, paid person in the university system and people who don't understand the context there of, you know, who generates revenue and blah, blah, blah you know, instantly are like, fuck this, this is insane, like, why do we, and then there's, and to some degree, there's some merit in that, by the way, I mean, it is kind of, if you just, like, were to explain to an alien, yeah, the highest paid person at, you know, 40 different state universities is, like, a football or basketball coach, it's, it's a hard one to explain rationally, like, I can justify it, because this is just something I'm passionate about, and, yeah, I can justify it on the grounds of, like, well, it produces revenue and blah, blah, blah. But, like, the reality is, 
you know, it's it's a, it's a, if if you're like doing some groundbreaking work where you're, you know, discovering cancer and you're making you know less, if you're being compensated less than a defensive line coach, like I don't know, it, it's a little bit hard to justify. But the point is, yes, Zach is probably right. Um, they probably know that, but I don't foresee, foresee them doing anything about it. I think the only way you can transcend that is under two circumstances. First, you can find donors who, you know, are fabulously wealthy themselves and who are willing to, um, to, to fund it themselves. Uh, because no, what can you say about that? It's a private donation. And two, I think that sustained success where you're having sellout crowds and you have enough of a, a fan base to, um, ju- you know, justify additional spends. That's when you could you could re- invest a bit more because you have like it's if it is political, which it is, then you have more political cover. In that case, you have quite literally more political capital, as they say. I mean, you 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 have a little bit more to play with because people are like, yeah, it's a worthwhile investment. They're winning, like so. It's a little bit of a chicken and egg thing because you're not really going level. You're not going to have those guys their their spend unless there's something you know that they can show point to so which of course is tr- hard to do if you're not spending so um you know i'm sure they know that these these are sharp guys who understand the lay of the land and the and the political landscape in the state and and around the country with the college sports more broadly but they also understand that they're not in a state that has historically supported you know collegiate athletics at the levels that certain states in the in the south and elsewhere have and and you know they're they're bound to their um to their material reality if you will and and i think that um just adding one final point is like i think that they are doing a lot probably quietly while you know maybe not drawing attention to it but at least providing bamford i think with some resources on buyouts and and otherwise that uh Actually, I don't even know if I can say that with any sort of certainty. Next question, Gaber205. If I buy tickets and then buy tickets for the Commonwealth Club, who is sitting in my seats? Are they just empty? Gabe, that strikes me as a little bit more of an existential question about friendship and companionship, and I'm not really sure um, if you want me to tell folks that you have some tickets available. Let me know. This may be an Alan Pandiani question, so uh, better better put to him. He also says, is the first game of the season really on election day? Who is responsible for this? It's often on election day because I think the NCAA changed the rule now where it starts on a Tuesday instead of a Friday. This is like the last two or three years. And, but also, what elections are there in 2019? Gabe's a Connecticut political guy, so maybe there's some Connecticut elections. I don't, baby, do you know if there's any elections this year on the, on I saw that, right. Every Okay, so, well, we don't know if there are elections this year. No, but it might work out in UMass fans' favor if they live in New York State. Well, yeah, but, like, that's a very small smattering of people. My wife explains that New York State has to let people off for three hours on election day or something. So, but I don't think I'm going to get to the opener, so whatever. We well, can we can talk about that later. Watch it. You could say you're voting or go vote and then spend the rest of your time. Yeah, but the game's at, like, 7 anyway, so. That's anyway. Um... What'd you say? Shift workers. Yes. Um, so Joel Southerl, who we whose question we answered before, um, 
or maybe we, I forget. He says, if UMass hockey, basketball, and football were well-known American politicians, who would they be? Oh, this is fucking good. Right in my alley. Okay, so Greg Carville is like, let's start with hockey. He's the guy who just like came out of, not really out of nowhere, was really solid, was quietly really solid and, and got a lot of shit done. And then just like got and just worked and worked and worked and then just like kind of blew up. So if you're talking about like recent stuff, he's probably your he's probably a little bit of a Liz Warren because you know her camp. If you're talking about just in this campaign, because she kind of struggled out of the gate, but she kind of just kept toiling and kept like sticking to her philosophy and then kind of eventually broke through. Um, so maybe. It, He's a bit of a Liz Warren, and and actually there is some similarities there. They're both like uh, sort of, sort of like professorial and like very methodical in what they do, and they kind of just like stick to the script and are very disciplined, um, and and not like super flashy. Um, so there is some similarities there. Um, Matt McCall, interesting one because he sort of like came from a, a an impressive pedigree, then had a really impressive, like, out-of-the-gate performance at Chattanooga, and then, like, overachieved his first year at UMass, but has fallen off a little bit, and, you know, there's some, there's some lingering questions there, but still has the impressive pedigree and some success. So, but he's young, so I'm not sure we can, we can say, hmm... Oh yeah, my 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 wife with a real good call in the background. I don't know why I didn't think of this. Booty Judge. Is it Buttigieg or Booty Judge? Booty Judge. Whatever. That's fucking good. He is. Yeah. There. There's. The thing is, I like McCall and I don't particularly like Buttigieg. Um, but there's a lot of similarities there. I mean, it's a, it's a compliment to Matt because Buttigieg has an impeccable resume. But it's almost like grossly impeccable. It's like you can't trust it. It's so impeccable. Whereas McCall had a little bit more of that grinder come up story. That that is that is not a, that is not a joke about the gay app. Shout out to uh, the fans of the program who are gay. We love you guys. But that was not a grinder joke about Pete Buttigieg and grinder. It, I was referring to grinder as in he's a grinder and you know a grit guy. Um, so, uh, boy, that's, that's not going to play well on this, on this one. Um, Benny, you'll have to decide if you want to keep that one in. Um, my wife notes that Buttigieg did not use grinder. He used Bumble to meet his husband, which is kind of, and she says too clean cut for grinder, which kind of disappoints me. It's like, dude, come on. Like he is just so perfect that I can't, I can't trust him. It's like, it's a little robotic for me. Um, so, okay. So. We've established that McCall has some Buttigieg, but is there anyone else, babe, based on what I said? No. Okay. Well, I thought you were, like, teeing it up. You said pedigree. She thought I was teeing it up. Okay. No, it's fair. I mean, it's, it's, it's look, like, it's, it might, that might stick. <laughs> okay. Um, then, finally, Walt Bell. So, Walt Bell is kind of like, this dynamic, like says all the right things. We still have some questions about Kenny coach, but he doesn't really have much to work with. So it's hard to know. He is 
Southern. He's sort of charming, great recruiter, real real good sales guy, but can he govern? Can he lead? We, those questions remain to be seen. There's a lot of excitement around him, but also like some question marks, but it's early, so we don't really know. So if we're talking about this presidential election um, on the Democratic side, Beto and Walt Bell. Yeah, Walt Bell and and Beto O'Rourke. My wife is fucking murking this. These are good answers because, you know, but the thing is like, yeah, I mean, I I just, Beto to his credit almost beat Ted Cruz. And so you have to give him, you have to give him that. And I don't know that Bell has that signature of an accomplishment yet. But it's certainly in this race, you know, I mean, that's 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 not a bad call. I'm trying to think, is there anyone else up there? Mm. Not Julio and Castro. Um, not Cory Booker, who himself was like an All-American football player at Stanford. What about like going on? The, no, they don't even have to have run for president. Like, is there anyone on the GOP side? who, like, Mark Whipple would be, like, Bill Weld. He's, like, running again for no apparent reason. Um, we could do other coaches. Like, Charlie Molnar is, like, uh, who's somebody that just flamed out and, like, moved to Idaho? Besides Bill Buckner. Who's the guy who was caught with the, this is, like, years ago, caught with... Larry the, Craig? No. <laughs> caught with, like, the porn model on his lap. Uh, Mark like, Sanford? No. Caught no, with a porn was, model on his lap? Yeah, this was, like... Like, he ran against, like, the first Bush or something. He was, uh, like, a... Gary Hart? No. No. Yeah, is that right? Think from Colorado? No. I don't know. But but who is, like, someone who just, like, had a pedigree for no real reason, was, like, untested, and then just completely flamed out and was, like, gone after two years and for never to be heard from again and was maybe borderline abusive? Uh... Like, like, who's that guy from, like, like uh, Pennsylvania that made the staffer get an abortion? That's got Molnarian elements to it. Um, okay. That's very close to slander. <laughs> All right, well, that's a joke. I just want everyone to know. Charlie, don't come after me. He's got other reasons he wants to come after me, believe me. Um, well, we did a whole, you don't listen to our show, we did a whole episode with his former quarterback basically saying that he was, like, uh, he, I didn't, he didn't call him abusive, but our, our, some of our listeners have characterized his sentiments as such. Um, most football coaches are abusive? Yeah, to a degree. I mean, they're sociopaths, yeah. Uh, Joel, again, am I justified in being angry when I see us listed as the worst team in the country? I feel like we're not actually that, and that our recruiting future counts for something. But, you know, we are 0-4, giving up half a hundred a game. Yeah, no, we're the worst team in the country right now, like, like I've gone over this, and I know you can't do the um, baby. What's it called when you the like, if this person beat this person, then they beat this person. No, no, no. It's not a hypothetical. There's a word like fuck. What is the word? My brain is fried right now. Like the, they beat them twenty five nothing, and they beat them twenty two nothing. So they. No, no, no. It's like the, fuck is the name of that? Anyway, um, well, if you do that. Like, literally Central Connecticut lost on the final play of the game to Eastern Michigan. Eastern Michigan beat Illinois, and Illinois beat 
Akron, who are about to play, like, 42-3. to So if you don't beat Akron, you're definitely the worst team in the country. I don't know. I just don't know how else to say it. Dan Dunphy says, does any other quarterback besides Brito get the start this season? I think at some point you have to give Michael Curtis a start. I know this is a popular topic of discussion. At some point, like, why the fuck not? On senior day, maybe, if nothing else. I mean, like, especially now Brito having a concussion, I don't see why not. Sloven will I, asks, will I survive my senior year of high school and live to tell the tale? Yes, I think you will, but be safe and, and don't act like it. A senior year is really fucking fun. Once you're done applying to college, that's like one of the best times of your life. Like, really fun. So enjoy it. Don't be stupid. You'll make the right decisions. Um, O'Brien1219, did the new bathrooms really help the football program? What would the re- record be without the new bathrooms? Record would still be 0-4. And, uh, wait, what are you saying? Okay, my wife's saying something about corruption in college sports. She's, like, wary of the whole enterprise. I mean, so am I, but I also, like, am sort of obsessed with it. Uh, did the new bathrooms really help? I mean, yeah, it's nice to have them, but I'm not really sure it sells any recruits on the, like, the fact that you didn't is kind of an embarrassment. Riff Raff Street Pat, PVL7, great friend of the show, always has great questions, says, what rivalry game is most important to you? Sport-specific or overall? I think mine is BC across all sports, but if we played UConn in hoops, it might change. I really wish Temple was still meaningful, and he says all that Harvard hoops might be the best series of the last five years. Yeah, Harvard's definitely been the best over the last five years. Hard to make a case, though, that it trans... Like, I think a quality rivalry, there's certain ingredients. First and foremost, it has to, like... It has to be pervasive enough that um, people who are only peripherally connected to your school's athletic programs know that it's a rival. So, or people who, you know, maybe go to like one hockey game a year in the case of UMass students get it and intuitively get it. And on that, for that reason, so Harvard's always going to be like kind of, there's gonna be like a fun rivalry there in the sense that it's like, fuck Harvard, like spoiled rich kids, whatever. Like there's all those things. It's like the people's school versus the elitist school. Like you have it built in dynamics, but Harvard is always going to have Yale, and you can make it a unique basketball thing, but Harvard people don't, even though their basketball team has been terrific, their fans don't even really care. Like, they don't really have fans per se, because they're so taken with themselves as having gone to Harvard that, like, basketball is kind of this, like, just thing that happens to exist within the broader school, you know, context, and, like, it just, I mean, the UMass fans are going to sell out their own gym again, like, you know, so that's a fun one for, like, the people who are really tuned into the regional college basketball scene. And I think that like, it is a rivalry for like us, but it is not a overall rivalry. You could have a peer institution. And for that reason, I do think URI makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think it's an inferior institution with inferior people, but I do believe that, you know, their success has helped. And the fact that their conference foes, um, have, uh, you know, helps. And so, you know, and then yes, BC, I think will always be that for UMass fans. But the problem is you need on some level, both schools to feel similar enmity toward the, you know, the other. And I just think BC fans have their own delusions of grandeur about who their rivals are. And UMass doesn't really stack up for them right now. If UMass gets hot in football ever, ever, and plays BC with any sort of regularity and wins with even, you know, one every three years, that could quickly become a big state rivalry because 
there's so many UMass fans in the Boston area that would come out of the woodwork and it would just piss off BC fans and it would stoke, you know, fuel the flames moving forward. So um, I think there's a lot of potential there. Mayor of New Mass, RP, what is his actual handle? RP Minuteman314 says, who will have more? John Leonard goals on the hockey team or men's basketball wins. I understand Leonard had 13 last year with McCarr and and uh, Ferraro gone. You have to assume he'll have at least, I mean, I don't know hockey too well, but it's fair to say he probably have like set the over-under at 17 and a half. And I'd set the over-under on basketball wins at like, 14 and a half, 15. So maybe 13 and a half. So I would say Leonard here, but some, I don't know. Somehow I just think you basketball will exceed that because Leonard will end up with like 13 goals and like 19 assists or something. I don't know. I don't really know how hockey works. Um, let's see. Other questions. I feel like, Oh, uh, let's see. There was definitely a couple more. I thought, this has gone on a while, so if you've checked out, I, I don't blame you. Um, yeah, maybe maybe that's it, actually. I swear there was, like, more questions, but... Um, I mean, I guess... I guess that's it. Maybe any more here? Uh, no. I mean, I think that'll, that'll do it. So I uh, hope you enjoyed the show and uh, talk to you talk to you later. Peace.